Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you, Melina, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, the 8th Annual Cancer Survivorship Series, Living With, Through, and Beyond Cancer. This is part four of our four-part series, Survivors to Communicating With and Among Family, Friends, and Loved Ones. This has been a very important series, and we are in the process of planning next year's series as well. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care, the National Cancer Institute, Live Strong, Intercultural Cancer Council, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, and the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. And it really is because of that collaboration that we have so many of you on the call today. We have on the call today over 2,621 people. So there are so many of you on the call today. Really, um, this is a, a huge call, and we have many participants from the United States, from large cities and small cities, from suburban areas, as well as rural and frontier communities. We also have international participants from really all over the world, from Africa, Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Canada, the Dominican Republic, Egypt, Fiji, India, Israel, Ireland, Italy, Mexico, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Singapore, Spain, Venezuela, Virgin Islands, United Arab Emirates, and the United Kingdom. So you really come from all over the world, and it's a credit to you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. Today's program is made possible by support from the National Cancer Institute and Live Strong, and I really want to thank them for their support of our program today. I want to introduce to you my esteemed colleague, who's really been instrumental in planning this program and in supporting it, Dr. Catherine Alfano. She is Program Director and Behavioral Scientist, Office of Cancer Survivorship, Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences, the National Cancer Institute, National Institutes of Health. And I now want to turn the program over to Dr. Alfano, who wants to say really some words of welcome to all of you. Dr. Alfano? Thank you, Carolyn. And let me add my welcome to our invited speakers and to all of the listeners who have joined us for today's workshop. I am truly honored to be able to co-host this eighth annual Cancer Survivorship Teleconference Series that focuses on the issues faced by survivors and their loved ones after treatment ends. On behalf of the National Cancer Institute, represented by my office, the Office of Cancer Survivorship, and by the Office of Communications and Education, we are very pleased to serve once again as an organizational partner and a co-funder of this program. The National Cancer Institute established the Office of Cancer Survivorship in 1996 in direct response to the articulate and compelling demand by cancer survivors and by the advocacy community to improve both the length and quality of survivor, survival for all of those living with a history of cancer, which is currently estimated to be over 12 million people in the United States alone. One of the ways the office achieves its mission is by participating in the development of educational materials and outreach activities, such as this teleconference series, that are designed to equip cancer survivors and their caregivers with the information that they need to achieve optimal health and well-being after cancer. 
As Carolyn noted, the number of participants in this, in this survivorship series and the diversity of countries that you represent have grown across the years. Along with our program partners, we are deeply gratified by this response. At the same time, though, we recognize that the popularity of this series is a testament to the fact that for many cancer survivors, caregivers, and families, even though cancer treatment is over, the cancer experience is not. We chose the topic of communication with and among family, friends, and loved ones for today's teleconference because many survivors, caregivers, and family members told us that communication poses unique challenges for them as survivors make the transition from treatment to recovery. Research has shown that there are many different ways that families discuss cancer and how it has affected them. However, there are some kinds of communication that can make it more difficult for families and loved ones to cope effectively with stress and to be able to fully participate in their lives. I am very pleased to have three outstanding national experts to address this important topic today. Again, I'm delighted to be co-hosting this workshop with my colleague, Dr. Carolyn Messner, and I'll now turn the program over to her. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Alfano, for those wonderful words of welcome to everybody and for really setting the context for our program today. And I also want to actually point everyone's attention to the materials that you received from Cancer Care. In those materials, there's information about all of the different collaborating organizations, and there's a wonderful Facing Forward series that is developed by the National Cancer Institute that's actually available to all of you. And please do use all these resources. Now, there also is an evaluation form, and I would ask you all to take a moment and complete that evaluation form form um, when the program ends because we really value your feedback. It really, we're starting to plan next year's program and your feedback really tells us what we should be offering. All the programs that we offered in this particular year were based on your recommendations and particularly this one as well has been a very strong recommendation by many of you that we have a program for um, for the uh, family, friends, and loved ones. So tell us what you want, and we'll very much try to implement it in our series in the future. So thank you so much. And now we have just wonderful speakers, and I want to start by introducing our first speaker um, is Suzanne Moritz-Dones. Um, she is Administrative Nurse Manager of Montefiore Medical Center, and she's going to really start the program by really talking about providing for us the family perspective. Suzanne? Hi, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Suzanne. I'm a registered nurse and the caregiver for my husband, Nelson, during his battle with cancer. I'm here today to share my experience as a caregiver survivor in hopes of helping others who are faced with similar situations as mine. I'll talk about what it was like for me, how I coped, and I'll share some of my communication and self-care tips that I relied on during this very challenging time. I'd like to begin by thanking the organizers of this program for inviting me to speak and also you for your interest in this topic. My husband being diagnosed with advanced cancer was one of the most challenging times in both our lives. At the time, it felt like our hopes and dreams were being shattered. Yes, I had the advantage of being a nurse and being familiar with the healthcare system, but even so, no amount of background or experience can prepare you for cancer diagnosis of someone you love. In fact, I think sometimes being a nurse made it more challenging because I felt so responsible for Nelson's well-being. It was like the entire world was on my shoulders. My husband was able to lean on me for everything. I kept track of his appointments, test results, medications, billing, and kept everyone updated. Nelson's job was to handle the treatments and do everything in his power to get better, which, of course, you all know, was no small task. I didn't just feel responsible for my husband's physical well-being, but also his psychological well-being. When he was in a slump, it was my job to get him out. I was his shoulder to cry on, but when it came time for me to cry, I tried really hard to hide my tears from him. One way I coped was to educate myself. 
I made it a point of becoming very well informed about his cancer and the treatment process. This helped me know what questions to ask and how to communicate with the healthcare team when it came necessary. I felt strong that to be an advocate for my husband and in order to get the best care for him, I had to be knowledgeable. At the same time, I had to be careful not to get caught up in the statistics, which can be quite depressing and immobilizing, as some of you know. Educating myself was helpful, but it didn't really tell me how to cope. I did, however, find it helpful to surround myself with people who can help me stay very positive and also be able to handle it when I did need to cry. They were my strengths so that I could be strong for my husband. My advice is to try not to go through it alone. Find people in your life to talk to, whether it be family, friends, or even a counselor. You need to find some kind of emotional outlet, and you need to talk about it. I found there were certain family members and friends that I couldn't really talk to and sometimes even avoided because they would seem so affected and would always make me cry, and although they meant well, it really wasn't helpful for my situation as a caregiver. I did realize early on uh, that there were a lot of people that really did want to help, and as a nurse, I know what a gift it is to be able to help someone. No one likes to feel helpless, so for the first time since I can remember, I took help. My husband and I both took the help. I tell you this because when you've learned to be so independent, accepting help isn't always easy. Family and friends help by cleaning our house, cooking meals, giving rides. Some people want to help, but they really don't know how. For those, I, for those people, I found it really helpful to be just honest and straightforward and tell them what exactly would be helpful. Sometimes in men asking people to make calls and disseminate information. Other times in men asking them to refrain from asking questions or giving advice. I come from a large family and found it very frustrating to repeat the same information all the time to so many people. So what we did in my family was keeping one or two people updated and gave them permission to disseminate the information. My advice is not to hint or hope that people will guess what you need. People are not mind readers. Um, Our ability to communicate our needs can definitely make a difference in whether we go through this difficult time alone or whether we can do it with the help of people that really do care and want to help. I found it very helpful to talk with people who had been through what I or, and my husband were going through. It helped to understand what would happen, um, and also simply knowing that somebody else went through what we were going through and survived was really helpful. The other thing that's really important to remember is to take time to care for yourself. Caring for yourself is one of the most important and probably most often forgotten things you can do as a caregiver. When your needs are taken care of, the person you're caring for benefits also. I'll admit that this wasn't always the easiest advice to follow, but thankfully I have sisters and friends that would periodically kidnap me for a long walk or a movie or even a manicure. So right now my husband is in remission and considered cured from cancer. I don't wish what we went through on anybody, but I do want to say that, believe it or not, good things do come out of the illness. Being able to take care of someone you love can be one of the greatest gifts as long as you take care of yourself along the way. In closing, I just want to thank all those who have and continue to support me through this challenging journey. And thank you all for listening. I hope that sharing my, a little piece of my story um, and my caregiving experience will help at least one caregiver realize that they're not alone and that you can, can take control of your situation. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Suzanne. That was really so helpful and so inspiring for everybody on the call to hear your experience. And, and you're stressing the importance of really uh, you know, being able to take care of yourself, and we'll hear more about that. Um, but I uh, can't thank you enough, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A. So thank you, and really thank you for really setting also the whole 
experience for everyone on the call today because you're actually talking from your own lived experience of what, what this has been like for you. So thank you. Our next speaker is Laurel, Dr. Laurel Northhouse. Dr. Uh, Northhouse is Mary Lou Willard, French professor of nursing, University of Michigan School of Nursing, co-director socio-behavior program, University of Michigan Comprehensive Cancer Center. As you can see, Dr. Northhouse wears many hats. And she's really going to talk about the stress experienced by family, friends, and loved ones, and what research tells us about the importance of communication. Dr. Northhouse? Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Mesner, for that kind introduction. I'd also like to thank the many organizations who are involved in supporting this program. In my presentation today, I'm going to first present uh, some information about the, dis the stress experienced by family members and their loved ones. And for these, those of you on the call, I'm going to use the term family member broadly. Uh, this includes relatives as well as close friends and other loved ones. So second, I will identify some of the common communication problems that have been reported by families. Um, we've been doing research with families for about 20 years, and we tend to see some of these same problems emerging over and over. So I will talk about those. And then third, as Dr. Mesner said, I'm going to describe what research says about the importance or benefits of open communication during the cancer experience. So let's start with the stress experienced by family members and loved ones. We know from a number of research studies that cancer creates stress for family members as well as survivors. And I think Suzanne did a very nice uh, job talking about what it was like for her and her husband. We know from research studies that family members often report as much anxiety and worry as survivors even though they don't have cancer. In some studies, it may surprise you to know that family members actually report more distress, more depression, and more worries about the future than do survivors. We know that um, family members experience distress for several reasons, and I'm just going to name a couple of those. Um, as Suzanne mentioned, family members are the major support person to people with cancer, and that's a big responsibility. Even though they're the support person and they've supported probably their loved one in other ways, trying to deal with cancer is a different experience. It's very scary. It can be overwhelming. And as Suzanne mentioned, it's hard to know how to deal with some of those powerful feelings that their loved one may be going through as they're dealing with cancer. In addition, family members are also the ones who provide physical care, such as dressing changes or help with pain management and so forth. And we know that caregivers have repeatedly said they don't feel prepared to give some of the complex care that we are expecting them to provide in their home setting. We also know that family members are trying to maintain jobs, keep household running, care for children, pay the bills, etc. Um, and this even becomes more threatening in our current economic situation where uh, many uh, caregivers are hesitant to take time off from work for fear that that may have some implication for their job or whatever. So it's, it's common for family members to feel overloaded and stressed out by the multiple demands on their time. We know from our own research with uh, families of cancer patients that they perceive little support from others. Even though they are trying to do their best at providing support to the survivor um, and deal, deal with the physical needs, they often feel left out on their own, um, and this increases the family member's stress. Studies indicate that family members are less likely than survivors to seek help from mental health professionals if they need it. Um, one study that I recall was with advanced cancer patients and their spouses. And in that study, researchers found that the spouses had more depression than the patients. 
but spouses were much less likely to seek help, mental health help, for their depression than were patients. There are other reasons that family members experience distress, but I'd like to uh, narrow our focus right now to communication problems pertaining to cancer. These are another major source of stress for both the survivor and the family members. We know from the research literature that many family members have difficulty talking about cancer. Cancer generates a lot of fear in both the survivor and their family members, and probably many of you on the call um, can resonate with that. It also stirs up a lot of emotions for family members. Um, some family members may worry that if they start talking about cancer, they may start crying, they may feel like they're going to lose it, and so they may avoid talking about it just to try to maintain some control in their life. But we know that um, problems communicating about cancer are very common. Um, one study said that 65% of the families in that study reported they had problems communicating about the survivor's cancer. So you can see that it is a pervasive problem. But what are some of these specific problems that we've observed in, in family members and survivors? Well, one of the most common problems is that some family members and survivors hide feelings about the cancer from one another. They may pretend that they're not worried about the cancer, even though they're very worried. In research language, we often call this protective buffering. And that means that survivors and family members keep their worries to themselves as a way of protecting one another from negative feelings. To better understand what I mean by protective buffering, take a minute to visualize a wall that may exist between a survivor and a family member. Uh, although they don't intentionally want to create this, fall, uh, this wall, it sometimes develops as they're trying to deal with their anxious and worried feelings and trying to help one another. And this wall, or the protective buffer, prevents them from opening, openly discussing their illness. We know from several research studies that hiding feelings is not helpful. Families who hide feelings from one another have more trouble understanding each other and also providing support. They also experience more distress. So even though hiding feelings may seem like a good way to deal with the cancer experience, it really doesn't work in the long run. Another communication problem occurs when family members hold the belief that talking about cancer worries or fears will actually hurt the survivor's adjustment. For example, um, I recall one study in which breast cancer survivors reported that they wanted to discuss their fears that the cancer might come back with their husbands. Their husbands, on the other hand, would not discuss the possibility of a recurrence with them. The husbands thought that talking about these fears would create a lot of negative feelings in their wives. It would hinder their wives' adjustment, and some of the husbands even worried that it would cause their wives' cancer to recur. But the research says this is not the case. Talking about worries and fears actually helps survivors. Sharing feelings reduces survivors' distress because it can help them deal with these fears and learn ways to cope with them more effectively. A third problem we see in families is that they have, often have different styles or preferences for discussing cancer. Some family members want to talk openly about the cancer and are very comfortable sharing their feelings, but other families are not, and this can lead to conflict. Some researchers have studied the ways that couples communicate about breast cancer, for example. Um, and I, I recall in one study they identified three different communication styles. 
One style was an open communication style in which both the partners preferred to discuss their feelings openly. The second was a closed pattern in which both partners preferred not to discuss the cancer. And the third was a mixed style in which one person preferred to discuss the cancer and the other one did not. Researchers found that couples who used more open communication or that open communication style had more satisfying relationships than couples who had closed, who didn't want to talk about it at all, or mixed styles of communication. So it's just something to remember as you think about um, the importance of communication. I want to point out a few things, though. That, so that even though researchers say that open communication is important, it does not mean that family members and survivors have to share everything. It's okay to have private thoughts of your own. Open communication also does not mean that families need to talk about cancer all of the time. It's healthy to set aside concerns about cancer at times and to talk about other things. It also helps to focus on enjoyable activities so that you don't feel consumed by the cancer. I'd also like to mention that open communication does not mean that it's okay to dump feelings or unload your feelings on another person. Family members and survivors have a hard time reacting to that setting in which they feel like these overwhelming feelings are being dumped out, and it can actually create more distress. And finally, open communication does not mean just giving advice to one person. That's not open communication or trying to fix the situation. Open communication means sharing your feelings in a thoughtful, sensitive, responsible manner and also being a good listener. I'd like to close, uh, close my comments by addressing the question that um, Dr. Mesner raised. Why is communication important? What does the research say? So even though families can experience problems, sometimes big problems, talking about the cancer, it's still important for them to try to do so. The research is very clear that family members and survivors who communicate in a more open manner have more satisfying relationships, they feel more support from one another, they have more empathy toward the other person because they actually understand what the person is going through, they have less distress in dealing with the cancer. Um, and these are all important benefits to open communication, even though it is sometimes very difficult to do. Well, I, want to, I want to thank you very much, Dr. Northhouse, for just an excellent presentation and really so informative. And I know there will be lots of questions for you really helping us to really look at the importance of communication and, and, really, um, and some of the things that get in the way sometimes. So thank you. Our next uh, speaker is Dr. Francis Marcus Lewis, and Dr. Lewis is the Virginia and Prentice Blodell Professor, Family and Child Nursing, University of Washington. And she is going to address, actually, communication barriers among loved ones, children, and survivors, and with healthcare professionals. And she's also going to provide practical communication and self-care tips. So I now turn this program over to Dr. Lewis. Thank you, Dr. Messner. I appreciate so much being with you and the team on the panel, as well as all these survivors and callers. It's an honor to be part of this program. My, my focus today is going to be, as Dr. Mesner said, what are barriers to communication? And I'll group these into a selected number of barriers that are coming from what we know from lots of research. And then on the second part, I'll come back to each barrier and I'll offer up what we know helps increase the adjustment and decrease the distress of the loved ones, the cancer survivors, and the children. So the first barrier I'll talk about is called 
when the spouse partner tries to guess what they can say or do to be supportive. Saying it again, what does, this is a barrier, when spouse partners try to guess what they can say or do to be supportive. And the reality is that spouse partners and even adult children try to guess what they can do or say to be supportive. And this guesswork, although well-intended, is unfortunate because the chances can be high that the person is going to guess the wrong thing. This guesswork then occurs, and it happens both in long and short-term marriages and relationships. It has nothing to do with how long the person has been together with the other person. Such guesswork is costly to both the person doing the guesswork and to the survivor. The person doing the guessing is trying their best to get it right, but they do not often guess correctly, and then they feel they failed or let the survivor down over and over. So they, they tend to burn out, and after a while, the person doing the guesswork thinks, why should I try? I can't get it right. So guesswork is costly also to the survivor. The survivor thinks they don't get it. They really don't understand what I'm going through or what's on my mind or he doesn't care about me or she does the dishes and housework when all I want is for them to sit and talk and hold me and listen to what I'm thinking about. A second barrier. A second barrier about communication is that cancer causes us to clam up or to withdraw and hold back talking about the cancer or limit communication to the biomedical aspects of the cancer and its treatment. And Dr. Northhouse um, made some important comments about that not talking about the cancer. But the clamming up is true for well-meaning people. I see it regardless, and I see it in the literature, and I see it in practice, regardless of um, the intention, we, we hold back because we're trying to be respectful. We hold back because many people fear they may not say or do the right thing. Some people hold back because we think talking about the cancer is going to cause additional stress and it will only further burden the survivor or the family and friends. So this clamming up happens in well-adjusted people, in happy people, and it just happens. However, the evidence is that when we clam up, when we are silent, that silence can be misunderstood. Even well-intentioned silence can cause the other person to think that you don't care, when in fact it's just the opposite. You care very much. So silence is easily misunderstood to mean you don't love that person as much as you did before. And so silence can cause sorrow even when we want just the opposite. Some people get away from silence, but they talk about the biology of the cancer or the treatment, and so their focus is on that material. But that kind of discussion overrides talking about the important things, things that you want to ask or questions you have, concerns and sharing of understandings you have. So talking about the medical aspects of the cancer is fine talk, but not if it blocks or hinders conversation about the other, perhaps more important questions, issues, wanting to help kinds of statements we want to give. A third barrier relates to children. Parents and caring adults 
do not know what to do or say to help children or adolescents who are affected by cancer in a parent-survivor. This is true regardless of the background, regardless of the level of education, regardless of the income of the parent and the caring adult. Somehow people think that if they talk about the cancer, they're going to scare the child. And as parents have told us in many of the studies, I want to care, not scare the child. When parents or caring adults do communicate with a the child, they often do one of two, three, I'm sorry, do one of three extreme things. They focus on the biology of the cancer, not on the questions or concerns of the child, or they use language for an adult and use terms to explain and talk about the cancer. The child can mimic those terms, but they don't understand them. And three, they can use sometimes frightening words that push the child away rather than closer to the understanding. And that's, that's a barrier, not knowing what to say or do. We'll come back to that with some tips in the end about how to handle that. Barrier number four, parents wait for the child or adolescent to ask questions about cancer survivorship or their, their situation before the parent or a caring adult talks about the cancer. And this happens for lots of reasons, but parents, caring adults think that a silent, non-questioning child or adolescent is doing fine, that nothing seems to be happening for them. The cancer has come and gone and the child or adolescent doesn't have any questions or concerns. That's what they think. The research evidence shows us, however, that both school-aged children and adolescents do not typically ask questions or initiate discussion or conversation about survivorship or cancer. They, the children and adolescents, see lots going on in the household, changes because of the cancer being over, treatment being over, things getting back into place, routines rechanging again. They sometimes see changes in the survivor's behavior or in the other parent figure's behavior, other adults in the family, and they, they read that behavior. They may not talk about it. They may not ask questions about it, but they know and see it. And we have evidence to say that for sure with hundreds and hundreds of children we've studied. Children also have heard stories or watched television programs or films about someone with cancer, and sometimes they put this partial information into their own picture, and they put together their own view of what's happening with the, the cancer and surviving, and this partial information may be worse, horrific, frightening, not clear, inaccurate, and that's the common situation. So this picture is often worse than what's really happened. But because they don't want to add to the survivor's or family's burden, the child holds back talking. They do not initiate questions. They hold in quietly their concerns. I think about it as a silent sorrow. Barrier five, adults and parents commonly misunderstand an adolescent's behavior as the adolescent not caring. Adolescents and young adults are developmentally pulling away from the family to go after their own life goals, their own identity, separate from the survivor. This is the work of healthy young people. It's not selfish. It's their self-care work. 
cancer and surviving cancer tends to pull the launching young person back into the family. So when they act as if they're not caring of the survivor, it's easy for parents, adults, to think that's a selfish adolescent, when in fact it's not. Two more barriers, and then I'll shift to communication tips. This is about providers. Providers do not always know if a person is a cancer survivor. That's important. You are a very special person as a cancer survivor. Survivorship is a wonderful world to be in. Now you've completed therapy and you're looking forward to the future and moving forward. But your medical history as a cancer survivor may or may not be known by your medical provider. And by not knowing, your provider is partly in the dark, working with partial knowledge. So, yes, you are much more than being the cancer survivor, but providers do not always know when you are a survivor. So it's a barrier. Last barrier is providers may not always address your concerns or questions as a, as a uh, survivor. This happens because appointments are focused on acute care and direct service, not on necessarily survivorship questions. In addition to the wonderful agencies that Dr. Messner and Dr. Alfano mentioned for you that you have resources for, your clinic appointment time often is not linked to your survivorship status. Practical tips. I shift now to the last part of my presentation. For each barrier, I'm going to give a tip. So you'll hear me remind us of the barrier and then the tip. Each of these recommendations comes from research. The tip for barrier one, when the spouse partners try to guess what they can say or do. The tip is to stop guessing. Instead, plan a regular check-in time with your loved ones to talk about what's been supportive in the past and what can be supportive in the future. Plan this as an unrushed conversation Turn off the phone, give each other your undivided attention, and when talking, ask open-ended questions, questions that you can't answer with a yes and no. So, for example, a good question would be, what can I say or do to be helpful and supportive in ways that you would find helpful and supportive? Tip for barrier number two, cancer causes us to clam up. Tip to handle that. I call it a kitchen table talk. Have a kitchen table talk about the cancer. Don't put the cancer under the table. Put it on top of the table. As Dr. North, Northhouse said, you don't have to talk about the cancer all the time. But it's good to kind of bring it up into everybody's awareness. And that way you can decide how often you want to talk about it. Not because you're dwelling on it or being sad about it. But during that kitchen table talk, you can talk about what you did that worked what went well. You can share success stories and positive things, not just things that were challenging or difficult. And when things didn't go as well as you wanted, you can talk about it, what you did and what you want to do better next time. Tip for barrier three, parents and caring adults don't know what to say or do. Tip, talk about cancer to a child like you're doing sex education. You want to fit the information to the child for their ability to understand and, and take it away. And you want to use language that will f help the child and not frighten with negative images that confuse them. 
So the image you can have is to hold on to this image that you are packing a child's suitcase for a trip. You're putting into that suitcase the ideas and images and messages you want the child to walk away with in their suitcase. Write down the words you want to choose before you have the conversation. Read the words sometimes aloud or to a friend. What will they say? How will they understand them? Practice saying these to a friend or in front of a mirror and be calm when you talk with the child. You're packing their suitcase for a successful journey. Tip four for the barriers about asking questions when children don't. Don't assume a child is going to ask the question. Initiate the conversation. Tip for barrier five, misunderstanding the adolescent's behavior. Tip, have a regular, even brief conversation with the adolescent and ask them what they understand about the cancer and how this affects them and their goals and create the plan together so that their goals move forward concurrent to the survivorship. Tip for six, barrier, providers do not always know if you're a cancer survivor. Tell your provider you're a cancer survivor. And lastly, tip seven, what is the barrier? Providers may not know or answer your questions that you have as a survivor, and the tip is to make a list of specific questions before you go to the appointment. Read the questions to make sure they're clear, and then have a family member or friend read them. Take the questions with you to the appointment. Don't rely on your memory. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how much education you are. The appointment goes fast, and you want to be sure and have those appointment questions written down. That concludes my comments. Thank you for this time to talk. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Lewis. That was really excellent, really very comprehensive, and lots of uh, really nice tips for everybody to think about in terms of communication. And we now have time for questions. We have lots of time for questions. I'm going to ask Melina to bring all of our speakers on board. Um, so I'm going to ask her to bring on Dr. Alfano, Suzanne Marthdonez, Dr. Northhouse, Dr. Lewis, and also, if you could explain to the audience how to queue up for questions, I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we do not get to answer your question, please call Cancer Care at the end of the call, 1-800-813-HOPE, and our staff are here to help you. So um, if we don't get to your question, please know that you can call us after the call. Um, uh, Melina, do you want to explain how to queue up for questions? Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. <coughs> Our first question comes from Gary G. Yes, hi. That was excellent. I really enjoyed it, uh, particularly the last tips. Uh, I am a survivor and work with the Peer Connect program. Uh, I've been reviewing a number of books on, on communicating with uh, cancer patients, and I found one that was helpful called Cancer, cancer Etiquette by Roseanne Kalick, but she's a, a librarian and cancer patient, and I w was wondering if there's a book that is written by uh, specifically to cancer uh, by someone with more of a, a counseling training that you might recommend. Well, thank you. That's an excellent uh, question, Gary. Thank you for the question. Uh, Dr. Lewis, would you like to address that question? Oh, it's a need we have, Gary. We don't have such a book. If there is such a book, it's and I've read so many that are based on personal experiences rather than what we could call evidence-based recommendations. So I know I, I personally cannot offer up 
a definitive recommendation. Um, the pamphlets that are available through the American Cancer Society and NCI and the Susan G. Komen Foundation, among others, are helpful. But I apologize, I don't know the name of a book that is beyond just personal experience or um, that's, that's evidence-based. I don't have a recommendation. Maybe Dr. Northhouse does. Any of our others? Dr. Northhouse, Dr. Anything? Actually, I agree with Dr. Lewis that um, it's, uh, right now, in terms of a definitive book, I'm not aware of one, and uh, there's a need for one. If someone out there is um, ready to write it, I think it needs we need one. But, but in the meantime, I think there's some wonderful pamphlets, as Dr. Lewis mentioned, through the organizations that are actually evidence-based and, and have very understandable information about dealing with cancer. And this is Dr. Alfano. I'll just add that the Facing Forward series that you all have uh, in the packets that you received for participating today, that Facing Forward series has a section on uh, social and work relationships. Um, and there's also a Facing Forward series that is specifically for caregivers. Um, when someone you love has completed treatment that has sections on talking with your family, talking with your partner, talking with children and teens, and communicating with other family members. And uh, these, the, the tips that are in there are very much what you're hearing today based on the literature. But unfortunately, there's no, I agree with the other speakers, there's no cohesive book. So the, the book has yet to be written, but there are materials, pamphlets, all of the um, organizations have websites, there's lots of information out there, but in terms of a definitive book, we, we are, we're turning Gary to our audience or someone will be writing that book or maybe in the process of writing it, but I would definitely uh, concur with Dr. Alfano, the Facing Forward series is a wonderful series in terms of just all the material right there for you. Thank you. Our next question, please. Our next question comes from Carmencita E. Yes, um, I would like to know um, if you can tell me how, how should I respond uh, to a very ill uh, family patient um, that tell me uh, <laughs> tell me the following statement: um, I'm not going. He's he's asking me. Tell me if I'm not going to die, um, although he's very ill with metastasis with all his bones. I don't know what to say. That, that's such an important question. Um, we're going to try to address it in a general way, but then I would like to talk with you after the call um, so that we can spend more time really helping you with that because that is a, a, is a, um, is a very important conversation uh, in terms of having that conversation. Would any of our like, uh, speakers like to address that um, in terms of just... Um... Well, I think... Um... That is a very difficult question to be asked from a, a family member who is seriously ill. And, um, and my suggestion is that um, you try not to necessarily, you could just simply say, I don't have the answer to that, I don't know, but I do know that you are seriously ill. And you can express your concern and then try to say, how can I, I be with you to um, help you cope as well as you can with the situation you're in. Uh, in terms of support, in terms of trying to deal with pain or whatever it might be, but um, it it's probably isn't it is a question that you would not be able to answer, but rather just um, provide support as needed. It's also a question that you and your family member might want to have a discussion with your healthcare team about. 
I think many of the concerns that people have is will they be will their pain as has been said will the pain be managed will their will their comfort be there will the family be there will there be people for me will I not be abandoned so these are all very important um, uh, questions that are sometimes behind that question like will you be there for me and will someone be there for me to take care of me um, so I, I hope that helps and I will why don't you and I plan to talk right after the teleconference today thank you though for raising that issue our next question our next question comes from Lisa Kay. Hi, um, thank you for taking my call. I'm a cancer survivor of five years. And uh, uh, I was really happy to know that my cancer never spread, of first stage one ovarian. Um, having gone through six chemotherapy treatments in the process of that, um, I got enough of the cancer experience to relate to other people as a cancer survivor and I get my caregiver on occasion for people who need that and one thing that helped me that I was able to share with um, my client was um, trying to be organized so that get a day planner get this stuff off of your mind and off your calendar and you know uh, different ways of being disorganized that adds to confusion and um, I know it's been it was in literature to do that but I had also read David Allen's Getting Things Done that explains uh, ways that just without even having the effects of chemotherapy that uh, I felt affected my thinking process very much so um, especially while I was going through chemo and then for a while after like for up to a couple years afterwards, it was so important. It was such a relief to me at the time uh, when I realized I was applying things that helped me so I wouldn't have to remember uh, trivia. I could and write you, it down. And did you have a I question could, you wanted to ask? Or? Oh, um, well, I just wanted to make that comment that, that um, because there is maybe not so much written down that mm -hmm. other than to tell people to get a day planner and write things down and keep them in a um, that I I don't know of other sources that would be helpful to people to read about how to get organized in such a way that would whereas before you might have been somewhat disorganized and it wasn't so just such a problem when you add the effects of chemotherapy uh, when you're I, I experienced chemo brain um, mm -hmm. and I was helping someone that I could see similar problems they were helped when I said here's a day planner I've got an extra day planner for you and excellent. and and could could relate well thank to you the That's excellent uh, tips and um, in terms of just the impact of chemotherapy long term um, Dr. Northhouse would you like to comment on that the impact of cancer long-term. Um, the treatments well, of chemotherapy in terms of memory. I think um, there are many long-term effects. Uh, some of them are physical effects, and we're finding more and more certain types of treatment can um, create problems later on in the illness. But I think that there's also the constant threat of cancer that both patients and family members experience, the worry, the uncertainty about the future, will it come back, and it's sometimes hard for people to know how to cope with those feelings that can continue to intrude in their thoughts. 
And one of the ways that, uh, a couple of the ways we encourage people to keep their regular appointments so they're being monitored carefully by their health professional, but it's also helpful for them to think of um, meaningful ways to live their life. So uh, in the time they have, even though it may be many years, many, many years, 60, 80 years, you know, what is important to them? What are their priorities? And so sometimes cancer's long-term effect is it can help us uh, determine what we really want to do in our life, what's important to us, what relationships are helpful to us, and really concentrate on those positive parts of our life or work hard to get those. And I think in terms of just the, some people do report some impact on memory and thinking and organization, there are actually a number of books that are springing up about this. Also, of course, the National Cancer Institute, Live Strong. Many organizations have materials um, available about um, some of that impact and how to cope with it and um, you know, ways to kind of compensate for, for that. We've done actually some teleconferences on that subject as well. So we're happy to know, Lisa, that you're out there and helping out um, you know, with your experience and um, we appreciate that very much. You're sharing that with all of us here today. Thank you. Our next question. Thank you. Our next question comes from Sharon G. Hi. Uh, this was a very good um, segment today. I had a question regarding my sisters. Um, one of my sisters started out um, kind of helping about 10 years ago when I was diagnosed, but always was very negative. We really should get in fights. So my husband and just kind of cut us off from each other so we don't speak anymore um, because we, I guess she just didn't know how to deal with my cancer. My other sister um, always would say she could come visit me but never to help. If I asked for help, she would usually say she's busy or I live too far, but she was always up for a visit and would classify it that way. And when she would come, she just wouldn't really talk to me. She'd just come and watch TV and then leave and not really offer to help make dinner or help me go somewhere or do the things that I need help with every day. And sharing your question? I just don't know what to do. I mean, if I need help, but I only have my husband mm-hmm. who works and then friends that help. Mm-hmm. So that's an, really an excellent question. I certainly would want to talk with you after the call as well, but I think we want to address your question in a general way as well. It is not unusual for families to have a hard time, as you're describing. Um, so just to put it in that more universal sense that, indeed, that happens um, in, in families. I'm going to ask Dr. Northhouse and Dr. Lewis to comment on this because I think that we all see this um, quite often. So although you're, you feel like this is just only happening to you, it does happen to many families um, that, um, that people have a hard, family members have a hard time dealing with, um, with uh, someone's illness and survivorship. Dr. Northhouse, would you like to go first? Uh, yes, I agree that um, in families, although we would hope that our our family members would be there for us and would be able to help us out and not just want to visit, uh, we would hope that we not get in negative conversations with them. Unfortunately, this does happen. And um, in some situations, I don't know if it's possible if your sisters live in a nearby at all, it's sometimes helpful just to seek counseling to try to work through some of these situations and learn better ways to support one another. But if that's not possible, um, it's also helpful to try to seek out other people who will be helpful in your life. 
Um, it, it would be nice if you could reestablish your relationships with the one sister who um, has been negative and see if there um, – it's hard to cut off relationships, and it would be nice if there was a way that you could work through this and have a talk about how to um, – how you would – what kind of help you would appreciate from her. But um, I guess I would say that these things do happen in families. Sometimes it takes time to work through them. Um, don't give up trying, but also know that right now at this point in your life, maybe your one sister, both sisters, are not able to give you the kind of support that you would find helpful. That it sounds like you do have, of course, um, some friends, and we want to. We actually today's program was both about family, friends, and loved ones, and your husband and friends. But I think sometimes support comes from sources that we expect them to come from, but sometimes support does not come from where we expect it to come, and it comes from other sources. I'm going to ask um, actually Dr. Lewis if she could comment further. Thank you. I won't repeat what um, Drs. Mesner and Northhouse said. I I was tracking carefully, and I agree with everything they said, again, from lots of studies. It's such a common thing that we developed something, a protocol to help families called well-meaning friends that hurt, friends and family that hurt, and that's what's going on here. So what, in addition to what they've said, I would say to you, this is about enhancing the connection not faulting or asking of it what it can't give. An enhancing connection here means how can you enhance the quality of the relationship between your sister and yourself. It's not to ask them to be a service provider, but it means to me that you would want to write down for yourself in a private journal what you really hope and want from the relationship. But I'm going to invite you to give away the idea that they're going to be in your helper team. Um, that's what I think is Drs. Mesner and Northhouse reminding us, that even people that love us can't always be our helpers. But clarify what you want, and it may be very specific, like I really want a conversation once a week with them where we can giggle together or we can talk about happy childhood memories, things that are doables for them. Clarify that. Then think about their behavior and why they're doing it. And my hypothesis, my hypothesis, that's all it is. I don't know your gifts and I don't know their gifts, but my hypothesis is that they are so in pain about the cancer that they can't look past that, that they have forgotten you. And it's not intentional. So recreate what you can build from with them. What is it that you had before that you can re-spark? The last thing I would say is to write them a love letter, a love letter in which you tell them how and in what ways they're special to you and put the cancer on the side. You are more than the cancer. You are more than a cancer survivor. You are who you are. Put, put you on the table when you write that note and then who they are to you. It's a letter, it's a love letter, a letter of affirmation. That's, that's what I would offer up. Oh, thank you so much. That's really, um, that's, and thank you so much, um, uh, Dr. Lewis, for that, for those remarks, and I hope that will be helpful to you, Sharon, and 
um, I think that, um, you know, this has actually been an extraordinary call. I actually want to thank all of our speakers. Um, I want to thank um, Suzanne Martz-Donners. I want to thank Dr. Laurel Northhouse, uh, Dr. Fran Lewis, Dr. Catherine Alfano. This has just been extraordinary. It's also been extraordinary by the by the questions you've all asked. They've really enhanced the call today. And I also want to thank all of you who've been listening on the call today. Um, I want to remind all of you that this is a one-hour education program and that when we plan a program like this, we recognize that you all have many needs that we could see on the program today that go far beyond the scope of a one-hour program. So with that in mind, I do want to remind all of you about all the services that you can access for free when this program ends. I'm going to focus on specifically cancer care services, but you can access these services from all many of our different collaborating organizations as well. Uh, cancer care has a staff of 60 masses level trained oncology social workers, and we're here to provide a host of services to you. We're here to provide uh, someone to talk to, counseling services. Um, we do that over the telephone and online. We also offer support groups. Many people find it helpful to be in a group with other people talking about similar problems and also coming up with some really helpful suggestions. And the support groups are all run by our professionally trained oncology social workers. We also offer practical and financial assistance, which is very important in, in coping with the whole survivorship experience. And we also do have lots of materials and booklets and fact sheets, and of course we do many of these workshops as well. But most importantly, I don't want anyone to feel that, this, that, you're, that you're alone in dealing with your problem. I want you to now feel that you're part of a community of support and that you, we're really all simply a telephone call away or a mouse click away in terms of get, accessing our um, email or our websites. All of the organizations who've come together for today's program are here for you. So you are now part of that community of support, and you are truly not alone. And I want to thank you all for participating. If you didn't get to ask your question, please call us. You can call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-HOPE. And please do send in your evaluation forms. This is the end of our four-part series of this survivorship series for this year, but we are in the process of planning next year's program and will rely heavily upon your feedback and your suggestions so we pick those topics that are most relevant to meet your needs. I want to thank you all for participating today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Have a wonderful day.